0: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. In the view of many, it's the most powerful institution in America. And more often than not, its judgment provides the definitive resolution of the most contested and important issues facing the country. The Supreme Court of the United States has come on hard times. Its traditionally high public regard has plummeted to the lowest rate polls ever have recorded in the wake of its decision overturning Roe versus Wade. And a series of ethics scandals have aggravated its standing and led to a chorus of calls for reform. The court feels out of step, not only with the public, but with the broad view of legal professionals and scholars who disagree with its recent decisions and methodologies across many areas of law far beyond abortion. Yet in stark contrast to previous crises in its history, today's court also feels isolated, insular, and unresponsive to the widespread criticism. A lockstep conservative majority of five to six justices appears unabashed about working its will on area after area, of our social, political, and legal lives. Some commentators pin the blame on essentially a run of bad luck under former President Trump. Others argue that the political branches have ceded more and more power to the high court. And, of course, there are many on the right who see the criticisms themselves as politically driven and insensitive to the essential qualities of the court's work. But for the large majority of legal and political actors who can only watch from afar as the court continues to put its stamp on issues that go to the heart of our health care, religious exercise, government regulation, environment, voting rights, in short, how we live, the burning question arises, can anyone or anything constrain this court? To take a hard look at a critical American institution that seems to be at its nadir of respect and public confidence in nearly a century, we welcome three of the nation's most thoughtful and knowledgeable court observers, and they are Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. He has been the senator from Rhode Island since 2007. He chairs the Budget Committee, serves on the Judiciary Finance and Environment and Public Works Committees and has been a leader, I would say the leader, on Supreme Court ethics and climate legislation. Previously, he was the U.S. Attorney in the District of Rhode Island from 1993 to 1998. I think we had a week and a half overlap. And the 71st Attorney General of Rhode Island from 1999 to 2003. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about the court today, Senator Whitehouse.
1: My pleasure, Harry. Good to be back with you.
0: Kate Shaw a professor of law and the co-director of the Forsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy at Cardozo Law School, as well as an ABC News legal analyst. Kate is co-host of the excellent Supreme Court podcast, Rick Scrutiny. She also worked at the White House Counsel's Office as a special assistant to the president and associate counsel to the president from 2009 to 2011 She previously clerked in the U.S. Supreme Court for Justice John Paul Stevens. Kate, very good to see you again.
2: Thanks so much for having me back, Harry.
0: And Professor Steve Vladek, the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas Law School, the Supreme Court Analyst for CNN, and the co-host of the National Security Law Podcast. He's argued over a dozen cases before higher courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, is the co-author of the leading national security law and counterism law casebook. But those all pale, at least in this season, uh, next to his new book, newly listed on the New York Times bestseller list, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. Congratulations, Steve. Would you have thought a book on the shadow docket would be perched uh, near the top of the New
3: York Times bestseller list? No. <laughs> In a way. Um, but as, as, as Ian Milheiser put it, it says probably more about where we are with the court than anything that I've done, that this is what people are interested in reading right now. Yeah, for reasons I,
0: I think we'll be exploring soon. I just want to ask you quickly, this phrase and concept has achieved currency, although in, in large part, thanks to you, though you always credit Professor Bowd for the christening, as it were. But in brief, how much more is the court using the shadow docket, including in controversial cases, than, say, eight years ago? It's always been within its power. How much
3: has it proliferated? It's proliferated a lot, and it's proliferated away from what used to be the typical emergency application. I mean, when Kate clerked, you know, anyone who clerked in the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, most of the emergency applications anyone paid attention to, was aware of, were in death penalty cases. And now it seems like every major divisive, you know, state or federal policy is reaching the court quickly on, you know, the shadow docket through these emergency applications. I actually think we're seeing a bit of a softening of the court's aggressiveness, certainly of the aggressiveness of maybe Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh in the last 12 to 18 months. But it's still the case that all these disputes are getting there. And I think the court has yet to fully grapple with what that means for its docket, for its role, and for its decision-making processes.
0: Yeah, and as your book lays out at length, there's some real shortcomings to making important law through that um, vehicle. So Amazon, New York Times bestseller, or wherever best books are sold, check out Steve's book. Okay, look, we're going to spend a lot of time, all of us, in the next five weeks dissecting individual decisions, including potential blockbusters about Voting rights, redistricting, same-sex marriage, of course, affirmative action. I'd like to focus today more on the court as an institution in American life, where it stands, what ails it, what, if anything, can be done. So let's start with just its public standing, which is abysmal. 18% of Americans said they have a great deal of confidence. 36 reported they had hardly any, and that's in 2022, before the latest round of ethical scandals. Where is the court in public standing relative to other crises points in history? How bad is this juncture? And let me throw in also where the academy and the legal profession stands in terms of the court standing. Anyone?
2: Well, I mean, to answer the easiest of the questions, the numbers that you just quoted are the lowest in most polls since People started polling on these questions. How much confidence do you have in the Supreme Court? I think the court is a hard institution to formulate the right kind of polling questions around. And so I'm never sure exactly what people are answering when they talk about how much trust or confidence or support they have for the Supreme Court. But whatever one thinks of the way the questions are formulated, the numbers today are historically low. Although, interestingly, post-Obs and in the first six months post-Obs, they really – Continued to crater. There was a little bit of a kind of restoration and some polling a few months ago. But regardless, we're still at historically low levels in terms of sort of polling. And, you know, in terms of academia, I teach constitutional law. Steve, I think, sometimes teaches constitutional law. I think for those of us who do, I think it becomes increasingly difficult to deny just how central politics is in judicial decision-making today. And and maybe I'll just take a beat to sort of say a little bit what I mean by that. I mean, I think that sometimes I think we are disserved by the many ways in which we can deploy the term political or politics and the many nuances. I mean, in some ways, the court has always been political, and there's this mythology of the court as standing outside of politics. But you think about the Supreme Court in earlier eras – the court during the FDR period, right? He puts most of the justices on the Supreme Court. Most of them come from a life of politics. They're senators, they're attorneys general, they're SEC commissioners. Many of them are actively involved with, in ways that would seem very dubious today, advising Executive branch officials, including the president, on the lawfulness of potential government action, they are intimately connected to the world of politics in a way that, again, feels very unfamiliar today. And yet none of them, when they take the bench, understand themselves to be, I don't think, in a kind of uniform or categorical way – tasked with carrying out an agenda that aligns with that of a political party. Some of them were beholden to presidents, in particular to FDR. So it's not to say that that never occurred. But I do think that a couple of things really distinguish the kind of political that the court is today from the kind of political it's been in other eras. One, there just is this perfect alignment of – the political platforms of the appointing presidents and the votes in high salience cases of all of the justices on the Supreme Court. And that was not the case as recently as you know five years ago when Justice Anthony Kennedy was still on the court. I think that's sort of one difference. And I think another difference, not just the alignment, but the kind of understanding when justices take the bench of the degree of kind of affiliation that they understand themselves to possess with maybe not a political party in their own formulation, but an ideological worldview that really does align in non-accidental ways with the worldviews and the kind of platforms of the major political parties. And I'm talking, I think, most about the three Trump appointees, but I'm sure similar criticisms could be leveled against the Democratic appointees as well, although I think it'd be hard to make quite such a convincing case, I think, on the other side. So I think that those are distinctions. So when we say the court is political today, we're not saying it's political and it's never been political before, but I do think it's political in a way that is different. And I think that pairing that with just how kind of maximalist a vision this court seems to have with its role in deciding incredibly important questions, I think that that is a kind of unique combination of factors we just haven't seen previously in American history.
0: That's all really, really excellent. Let me try to imagine how court defenders or justices might push back. You know, So let's say Justice Alito, who wrote the most recent Thunderbolt from the court, let's say he's here, I think he'd offer up something like the following, you know, look, the people don't really distinguish between politics and law. Sure, they sometimes dislike the results as with Dobbs, but that's just inherent in judicial review, which is among the whole court's, you know, highest callings. We just can't, worry about that we just have to go ahead and do law and by the way the dissent's arguments as he said this morning can't be taken seriously what's wrong with that line of reasoning
1: well you know we're hearing harry arguments very like that in defense of the indefensible thomas gift reporting scandal that this is basically just Democrats who aren't getting what they want out of the courts any longer, and it's just a bunch of sour grapes whining, which is a fine distraction from the actual facts, which is a set of facts that is unprecedented in the court's history and appalling to anybody who's taking an honest look at it. And I just think that the public actually is a pretty true sense of what is going on. I think that, frankly, the Supreme Court press, for sure the Supreme Court bar, and the Supreme Court adjacent academia are real lagging indicators compared to the public because they're all constrained by not wanting to annoy a judge. The worst of all being the Supreme Court bar because they don't dare say anything unkind about the institution where they make their living. But shortly behind that are the Press, which has been pretty hapless with a few very prominent exceptions like Linda Greenhouse and Dahlia Lithwick and a few others. But by and large, it's, it's hapless coverage and not attentive to any of these concerns. And then the academics are very cautious because I don't know, maybe they want to get their students into clerkships or whatever. But I think that the public has got a very strong sense that things are wrong at the court. And I think there's an abundance of evidence to back it up. And they don't have to make the case to the finest little jot and tittle of the argument. It's enough for them to just have a strong sense that something is wrong at the court. And they're right. Something is very
3: wrong at the court. Just to piggyback on Senator Whitehouse, I mean, I think part of what's wrong, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about the justices because obviously they are central players in the story. I think part of what's wrong is that the court is just out there on an island and that for better or for worse, and I think increasingly for worse, what separates the court of this generation from its predecessors is not that it has a conservative majority that's been true at other points in the court's history it's not that some of its decisions seem out of kilter with the you know mass of public opinion that's been true at other points in american history it's that the court both is and acts as if it is completely unbeholden to congress in a way that we've never seen before so when chief justice roberts responds to the invitation to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee by saying merely accepting a voluntary invitation would raise separation of powers concerns and undermine judicial independence. You know, I want to send him a history book and say, well, wait a second. The history of the Supreme Court's relationship with Congress is a history of push and pull, where Congress at various points made entire terms go away, where Congress made cases go away, where Congress as late as 1964 gives the justices much less of a pay raise than every other federal judge because it was mad at some of the civil rights decisions. And, you know, against that backdrop, the fact that today there's this mindset that anything Congress does, whether it's in the ethical sphere or the docket sphere or the budgetary sphere, somehow crosses a constitutional line, completely conflates judicial independence with judicial unaccountability. Um, Those are not necessarily mutually exclusive. They have not historically been mutually exclusive. And yet we're in a moment where at least some of the justices are acting like you can't have one without the other. Let me
1: put what Steve said to a finer point, which is that the questions that we were asking Chief Justice Roberts to respond to were questions about the implementation of a law passed by Congress by an agency established by Congress. So the judicial conference was established by Congress, the ethics and government law was crafted by Congress, and how the judicial conference was enforcing the ethics and government law was the question. You tell me how an honest Supreme Court Chief Justice comes up with a separation of powers defense to talking about that.
2: And can I just jump in? It's not just that response, but Roberts earlier this week, right, gave some remarks at the American Law Institute. And in the course of doing that, basically, you know, reiterated this. He said, look, I want to assure everybody that I am committed to making certain that we as a court adhere to the highest standards of conduct. We are continuing to look at things we can do to give practical effect to that commitment. We can do that in ways that are consistent with our status as an independent branch and the Constitution's separation of powers. And it's implicit, but I think it's clear in those statements that any ethics, regulation, and reform in the court's view, must come from within. And that is not obviously a recipe for any kind of meaningful ethics progress on the Supreme Court if all they are willing to tolerate is what they will voluntarily impose upon themselves.
1: Although let me read a few different tea leaves into that, if I may. And that is that I think the court's reputation is not only in the pits with the public, but I think the court's reputation is in the pits with the other federal judges, I think that the signal that came out of the judicial conference about the Scalia free holiday trick by wangling a personal invitation, I mean, that door got slammed very hard in the Supreme Court's face by the judicial conference. They now have Thomas back for a second round of review after they papered over the first round. I don't think they find that very amusing. And frankly, they all know perfectly well that the Supreme Court's saying nothing to see here, folks all of our behavior is fine, is flagrantly false. They know they could never get away with that on their courts. And when the court pretends that it's okay, that it's sort of standard judicial practice, it casts a shadow on all of them, that they might be indulging in similar kinds of behavior. And I think there's a lot of resentment about that brewing because they know damned well they don't do that, they couldn't do that, they'd get caught if they tried. And the Supreme Court, pretending that none of this is real, is uh, intensely irritating to them, as Judge Wolf said, deeply disturbing, I think were his words to the other judges. And I think that's where the comment from the Roberts might be coming from. He might be hearing from the judicial conference judges, hey, pal, you've had your fun. Knock it off. You're making us all look bad. It is
0: noteworthy that he thought the moment finally had come to say something, but I really Agree that it was a short opinion that the footnote uh, was most prominent, the reference at the end to separation of powers, and the express suggestion that we're going to decide at the end. We'll move into ethics in a moment. I want to stick with organic causes a little bit uh, longer, but we can see a real sort of crisis point down the line where Senator Whitehouse and colleagues actually pass some kind of robust ethical guidance or law, and the court just strike it down.
3: I also think it's worth stressing Chief Justice Roberts has perhaps less power to act unilaterally in this space than I think a lot of folks assume. And so I also think that it's entirely possible that what he would do if it were up to him and what he is able to do under the constraints of having to get unanimity in order to actually accomplish anything are two radically different things. That's not to excuse his behavior. It's not to excuse anything he said. There are folks out there who I think are under the misimpression that the chief could just bind the other eight justices to enforceable ethics standards by himself. And, you know, for better or for worse, I would say for worse, that's not how things currently stand. Of course, there are other things he can do. I mean, he has a bully pulpit that he has chosen not to use. And this goes back to the larger problem, which is that I think the chief is actually now stuck between agreeing that a lot of these recent events paint the court in a terrible light, but also not wanting to cede even one inch of real estate back to Congress. And so trying to figure out how to split that difference in a way that he can actually keep everyone from Justice Kagan to Justice Alito on board with him.
1: There are two things that he can do. One is he can use the power that he demonstrated unilaterally to investigate matters Remember, he launched the investigation into the Alito Dobbs decision leak. So he could perfectly easily also do an investigation into, for instance, what Justice Thomas knew and when he knew it about his wife's insurrection activities as it relates to his decision not to recuse from the January 6th case. Now, he's not going to do that for a whole variety of reasons, but he could. The power is right there before him. And then he also has the power as chair of the Judicial Conference to influence its behavior. And I suspect that his influence has been so far to protect the court, to bury questions, to avoid controversies. But now it may be forceful enough that he has a moment kind of in Pontius Pilate mode to wash his hands and say to the rest of the judges on the Judicial Conference, which is a very senior and august group of judges... I will keep my hands clear of this. You are welcome to come up with what you can come up with. Let's try to solve this problem.
0: I do want to underscore, and and Kate, you may agree having been there, that it sounds like Chief Justice, well, he can say what he wants. But I remember Rehnquist used to say, well, he could just do a sort of little disapproving nod. I think the court is more accurately analogized to nine little beehive law firms than it is to uh, kind of starting nine with him as the manager. But it's also true, of course, that the things you're talking about, Senator, would undermine his agenda of keeping the court together in other ways. So I think he really does you know, feel this strongly, but is constrained in all kinds of cultural as well as, as legal ways. I wanted to maybe put you on, on the spot a little, Kate, because I perceived a slight difference of nuance between the senator and Steve's points, and, and they dovetail with similar nuances in the overall commentary these days. So Steve, I think, kind of points the finger at Congress for giving the court all this power but no longer exercising any modicum of control I think the senator and others, there was a—we know Kim well in The Atlantic just said the modern Supreme Court has made itself the most powerful branch of government, superior to Congress, yes, but also the president, the state's precedent, procedure, and norms, in effect, superior to the people. So to the extent they are— It occurred to me this morning, could I call them possibly the most self-aggrandizing court in history? In any event, they're up there. Does the fault lie in the political branches for not stepping up or the Supreme Court itself for, you know, flexing its own muscles and cowing the other branches?
2: Yeah, and maybe not surprisingly, I do think it's a combination. I would say primary yeah. responsibility does lie with the court and its mm-hmm. assertion of this completely unbridled authority, and I think secondarily, a lot of responsibility does lie with the other branches with I think Congress for not asserting its power to control the Supreme Court in the ways that Steve alluded to a few minutes ago. And also, I mean, Steve mentioned the chief justice and the bully pulpit, a point that I've returned to again and again is that the president, I think has been pretty derelict in using his bully pulpit to focus the public's attention on the Supreme Court in a way that I think would be quite effective and powerful, would both, I think, maybe embolden Congress to actually take some steps, would, I think, further galvanize public opinion. And I think we see in ways large and small that the court is paying attention and the court does care about public opinion. And so it seems to me that this is an enormous missed opportunity if Biden, as he's sort of hitting the re-election campaign trail, does not spend a lot of time talking about the Supreme Court, a topic on which he's been conspicuously silent. So again, I think there is plenty of blame to go around. I think primarily it does lie in the first instance with the Supreme Court, but at this point it is pretty broadly shared.
0: And if I can just add my own gloss, this is the most obvious of all and implicit in what you were saying, but my main brief with the court is that especially the three Trump Trump Justices were, you know, it it goes back to a whole kind of culture that comes into existence in the 80s, and the justices were almost bred in this hothouse of really strong cultural allegiance to a particular right-wing agenda, to which I think they remain loyal even after their appointment. In other words, Trump and Leonard Leo and others very craftily and methodically gave us intelligent, thoughtful people who may belong on the bench, but are so much in a very narrow stratum of where overall judicial opinion, public opinion would be, and you might call that bad luck, you might point to a broader sort of social history of it, but that's what really I think we've been kind of stuck with. Yeah, I think,
1: Harry, you've hit the key point, because this is not some abstract separation of powers balancing act between the legislative, executive, and judicial branches. This is a judicial branch, a Supreme Court that is aggrandizing power to itself with a purpose. And that purpose is to make manifest in the law the desires of a small group of creepy right-wing billionaires who saw to it that they were appointed who were funding the ads for them, who were in the back room at the Federalist Society when the whatever the list, however the list was cooked up, it was cooked up, and who are lectured to constantly by dark money funded right wing front groups that come in and file amicus briefs pretending to be separate organizations when it's clearly an orchestrated phenomenon.
0: And lionized and championed in their own sort of social settings without getting you know too dark about it. There's a home team here, I think. And in contrast to what Kate talked about with the SEC and senators, it just ain't the American people as a whole, I think. That's a really rough thing to say, but it just seems true to me. I want to follow up on one thing that the senator said about the press and Daya uh, yeah, Lithwick. There's an interesting series running now about the potential failings of the press. I think Lithwick would say, look, we just had Sackett come out this morning. And Lithwick would say you need to have three paragraphs there, the same as we now have the two paragraphs that, oh, by the way, Donald Trump is always lying in these accounts of the broader social setting and the alignment with the policy platform, A, is that possible even? And B, do you agree that as long as we're parceling out blame, the Supreme Court press deserves some?
3: So I would just say yes and yes, but also that if Dolly were here, I think she would say part of the problem is also thinking that the way to cover the court is to cover the merits decisions. Right. The more we sort of frame, you know, the news of the court is the decision in Sackett, the more that we are accepting the notion that all the other institutional stuff is irrelevant.
0: I just happen to have Dahlia Lithwick right here.
3: No, no, I'm kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> but Harry, but I mean, this is what, you know, this is one of the themes I try to hit in the book, which is, you know, when you look at the court holistically, you see a very different picture than when you look at the 55 carefully curated, hand-selected merits decisions that the court hands down each term. And so, you know, I think it's not just that, yes, any conversation about Sackett should be about how, you know, once again, the putative textualists have a hard time being textualists. But I think also it should be about how this case has itself been a cause celeb in the conservative legal community for years on end now. The waters of the U.S. rule, which this decision effectively neuters, has been a cause celeb for years on end now. And so, you know, it's not just here's one decision that had an interesting split with Justice Kavanaugh joining the Democratic appointees. It's here's the latest salvo, this one on the merits docket. But last term, the second most important environmental law case that the court heard after West Virginia versus EPA was on the shadow docket, right, was the uh, emergency application that they granted in Louisiana versus American rivers. So I think the court's press corps is already changing a bit, but is right. Jay Willis is right. That whole sort of cohort is right that the Supreme Court's press corps is conditioned to think about covering the court as the sum total of its merits decisions, and that just ignores all the ethical stuff that we've been talking about. It ignores the court's own role and responsibility in generating that docket, and it ignores a whole bunch of other stuff that we ought to really be educating folks about, and and I think once we educate them, sort of building consensus about why these are unhealthy practices going forward.
0: It's time now for our sidebar feature, and this is one of those days when I feel incredibly lucky to be hosting this podcast. The topic, how does the U.S. incur debt? which is, of course, a fundamental concept for purposes of the debt ceiling crisis that is currently going down to the wire between the White House and the Republican Congress. And to explain the concept, better call the great, the one and only Bob Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk, of course, is an actor, comedian, and filmmaker best known for playing the iconic lawyer Saul Goodman on Breaking Bad and the spin-off series Better Call Saul. Since Better Call Saul premiered seven years ago, Bob has received five Emmy nominations for Outstanding Lead Actor and six nominations for Outstanding Drama Series. Bob is also known for his HBO sketch comedy series, Mr. Show, with Bob and David, which he co-created with David Cross. He also can be seen in high-profile films such as Nebraska, The Post, Little Women, and Nobody. Before becoming an actor, Bob wrote for Saturday Night Live, The Ben Stiller Show, and Late Night with Conan O'Brien. I give you Bob Odenkirk on how the United States incurs debt.
4: How does the U.S. incur public debt? The United States currently owes about $31.5 trillion to various creditors. How does the country incur debt? The process for the country to incur debt is much like the process for an individual borrower. But instead of a car loan or home mortgage, the government is borrowing to fund public programs, infrastructure, and other public needs. For example, if the U.S. took in $1 million in taxes but spent $2 million on national defense funding, the country would have a deficit of $1 million. In order to cover that gap, the government borrows money in the form of either Treasury notes or bonds or inflation-protected securities known as TIPS tips. Once incurred, the debt can be either held by the government or by the public. Debt held by the government or intragovernmental debt is debt that the government owes itself. Basically, it's when the Treasury loans money to government agencies. The Social Security Fund and Medicare are familiar examples. Public debt, on the other hand, is exactly as the name implies, debt owed by the public. Public debt consists of everything the government owes to lenders other than itself, like individuals, corporations, insurance companies, banks, foreign governments, and the Federal Reserve. This debt is incurred when the federal government sells marketable securities like treasury notes, bonds, and treasury inflation-projected securities, known as TIPS, these investments are known to have low credit risk since the federal government has never defaulted. Currently, the U.S. owes about $6.9 trillion in intra debt and $24.6 trillion in public debt. Analysts expect the public debt to grow and intragovernment debt to shrink in the coming years. Public debt often increases in times of crisis. So, for example, COVID required the U.S. to incur a lot of emergency expenses. As a result, the public debt jumped in 2020 from $17.4 trillion to roughly $24.6 trillion today. Other recent instances of dramatic public debt increase include the Iran-Afghanistan war and the 2008 banking crisis. The U.S. is one of only two countries with a debt ceiling. The other is Denmark. While most countries aim to cap debt as a percentage of gross domestic product, or GDP, the U.S. has a hard ceiling of $31.4 trillion. The government hit that ceiling in January of this year, which is what stoked the debt debates currently taking place across the U.S. Many propose raising or eliminating the debt ceiling, including Janet Yellen, the chair of the Federal Reserve. Negotiations between the White House and Congress recently stumbled, although the official date of default, June 1, is right around the corner. It remains to be seen how the U.S. will avoid default. For Talking Feds, I'm Bob Odenkirk.
0: Thank you so much to Bob Odenkirk for explaining how the United States incurs debt. You'll be able to see Bob in the breakout hit The Bear on FX, where he is joining the cast in its second season, which premieres later this month. And now a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. My
5: name is Malita Picasso and I'm a staff attorney at the ACLU's LGBTQ and HIV Project, where we work to defend trans people's safety, dignity, and healthcare across the country. This includes litigation to protect trans youth in Arkansas, Texas, and other states trying to ban their access to life-saving healthcare. The onslaught of anti-trans bills pushed through state legislatures throughout the nation is truly unprecedented and directly harms a community that already experiences high rates of violence, harassment, and discrimination. As we track and fight these bills, we need your support. Help us build communities where trans youth feel loved and supported. Visit aclu.org slash LGBTQ to learn more and get involved.
0: All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages.
6: Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we hop into the beer cooler to ask the question to IPA or not IPA? The India Pale Ale has become synonymous with the word hoppy. And it's that hoppiness that's created a bittersweet relationship with IPAs that has divided beer lovers across the world into two categories. Those who love this style of the pale ale for its full flavored bite with flavors of lemon and pine needle plus typically higher alcohol content. And then those who prefer a little less sharpness with each sip. So what gives IPAs that signature bite? Well, there's another abbreviation you should know. IBU which stands for International Bitterness Units. The higher the IBU, the more bitter the beer. Luckily, at Total Wine & More, we carry an array of IPAs that offer up a huge range of happiness. We've all been bitten by a hoppy IPA in our past. Swing by your local Total Wine & More and let our guides find you an IPA that's more Y-O-U. So find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Cheers!
0: Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. So let's move to the ethical stuff. Maybe start here, simple question. How bad is it? You know, you hear compared to Abe Fortas, who had to leave the court, which actually, as I think Steve pointed out in a very sobering tweet, uh, began the whole cascade of Republican appointees.
2: Clarence Thomas, Abe Fortas, discuss. I'll just say... It seems to me that we probably still don't know the full story, um, but based just on the ProPublica reporting to date, I think that the kind of improper transactional relationship that we have seen depicted in this reporting in which Crow has been lavishing Clarence and Jenny Thomas with luxury vacations and subsidizing various aspects of their lifestyles, their families' lives for years, but importantly, years beginning after Justice Thomas took his seat on the Supreme Court because he and Crow did not meet until Thomas was already a sitting justice, I think far exceeds the financial misdeeds that led to Abe Fortas's ultimate resignation from the court. So I think that this is really, really serious. And again, I don't, At all get the sense that we have learned everything there is to know. And I think one reason that I think that partly because my sense and the ProPublica reporters have said this publicly, they are continuing to run down investigative leads. They keep looking at this story and and kind of pulling various threads. But we also had to come back to the Judiciary Committee, a letter from one of Crow's lawyers resisting efforts to get information from Crow about all the gifts he's given to Supreme Court justices. And the letter was... A pretty shocking document to my mind. I'd be really curious to get the senator away in, so I'll stop talking in a minute. But the letter seemed to suggest that it was a separation of powers problem of the most grave sort to ask a private individual, Harlan Crow, to disclose information to the Judiciary Committee about his transaction. So this is not a letter on behalf of Justice Thomas, although you wouldn't necessarily know it if you read the letter quickly because it sort of reads like it is. The letter is shockingly weak in substance, right? It cites lots of cases that are about the president and not about the Supreme Court in referencing the separation of powers, but also seems to suggest that the client of this private law firm is not Harlan Crow, but in fact, Justice Thomas in a way that is incredibly concerning. But also the degree of kind of defensiveness in the letter suggests to me that there probably is a much that we do not yet know. But Senator, I'm dying to hear what you think of all of this.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. It was six pages of legal verbiage that managed to miss the two salient points. One was we're examining a statute passed by Congress requiring ethics reporting and how it's being enforced. And we're examining how it's being enforced by an agency constructed by Congress, the Judicial Conference. Neither of those facts is mentioned in six pages. Instead, they compare it to, you know, Trump versus Mazars, all you need to know about the difference there is the point that you just made, Kate, Trump. <laughs> Look at the caption. The president of the United States, sitting president, was in that case and could assert separation of powers. Harlan Crow is not a power. He is not a separated power. He may be a billionaire, but he simply does not get to make that assertion. And to the point, I don't want to belabor all the mischief that was done in the Clarence Thomas disclosure scandal, but it is important to understand that the two things are not separate. The Harlan Crow Clarence Thomas ethics disclosure scandal is actually the Harlan Crow Clarence Thomas ethics disclosure scandal leg of this larger beast that requires you to look at, like the Sackett decision. Once again, predictably, the polluters win. Once again, predictably, the dark money amici presaged the decision. Once again, predictably, you can look to right wing doctrine factories for the background analysis. Once again, you get to this question of who appointed these justices? Where did that come from? Who was in that back room at the Federalist Society? What deals were struck? What is happening here? None of that should be secret. And it all is of a piece, in my view. And I think that makes the ethics problem, the narrow ethics disclosure problem, much, much worse.
0: That's actually the point I wanted to move to, and I just wonder, I mean, this is a very, very dark view, obviously, and I think everything we've said before we got to ethics, we would stand behind, and the question is whether the ethics issue are almost a sideshow or a part and parcel of the general problem. So, as you tweeted, Senator, the Claren- this is the Clarence Thomas ethics scandal appendage of the ongoing scheme to catch the Supreme Court for creepy Billionaires, So I hate to put people on the spot as against a sitting senator of the United States, but is that fair? Is this sort of all, well, is the appendage image of the senator, do you concur with it that this is all sort of of a piece or is it
1: a freestanding separate problem? While they're thinking, let me suggest (laughs) that the picture of Leonard Leo (laughs) In the painting, tends to prove the connection between the leg and the body. Yeah. But go ahead, have at it. <laughs> and by the way,
0: amazing! This was hidden in plain sight all these years. But that's another point. So I'm sorry.
3: I think you two people were put on the spot, and
0: Steve is stepping up.
3: I will occupy the spot. Um, so I guess I am, as I think this conversation has already revealed, a little more sort of romantic about this, and a little less cynical about it than I think the senator and Kate are. But I think the point on which there's absolutely no room for disagreement is where Kate started, which is, one, we still don't know everything, right? And indeed, the senator may know a fair amount more than we do. But two, the real problem to me is that we are hashing this fight out in the court of public opinion when we would normally say we need some kind of independent, neutral arbiter, whether it's an inspector general type officer or some kind of other body that's in a position to say, yes, this behavior by this justice crossed the line, this behavior by this justice did not cross the line, but maybe the line is blurry and should be clarified. One of the things I can't get over is I would have thought it would be in the interests even of the conservative justices to try to you know burnish the court's legitimacy and public perception by getting behind forward-looking. I mean, if the court proposed a forward-looking mechanism in exchange for giving up any potential liability or consequences for past conduct, folks would object, but I think that would actually be a very viable compromise, and we're not even hearing that. And so to me, it all sort of is circling around the same drain, which is that every time we get another one of these stories, folks like the four of us are going to react the way that we're reacting here. Folks like Mark Pauletta and you know Leonard Leo are going to react the way that they're reacting, And it's just a vicious feedback loop where there's no way out of it until we have some kind of mechanism, whether it's one adopted by the court voluntarily or imposed upon the court by Congress. That's
0: trenchant to me. I I want to say one quick point and turn it over to Kate, which is, you know, it's interesting to contemplate what the other conservatives in particular think about Clarence Thomas now, but I think in the overall besieged feeling that at least Alito feels Their ability to put any distance between them and Thomas, I think, is much muted by their worries about the broader attack they feel the court under. So in that sense, I think circling the same drain puts it very well. They want to give no quarter, not because they want to take yacht trips, but because they want to stick up for their own project with the court.
2: I was going to say something that maybe just to, to put slightly differently threads of what both uh, the senator and Steve just said, which is that, one, I, I completely agree that it's a mistake to conceive of the Supreme Court sort of ethics scandals in a completely separate category from the court's docket, whether we're talking about its merits docket or its broader docket, as Steve often and correctly reminds us we should be conceiving of. I think there are obvious connections. I mean, one, I think that Justin Elliott, one of the ProPublica reporters who's done this investigative work, has pointed out, you know, there are places where you have seen shifts in Justice Thomas's own views that might be traceable in some fashion. It's hard to know, but seems not crazy to suggest. He authored in 2005 a very sort of pro-Chevron opinion in Brand X and has since repudiated that and has come out as sort of one of the sharpest critics of Chevron. That's notable, at least. So that I think there are sort of discrete examples of potential points of intersection between these two kind of storylines. But I do think sort of more broadly, whether or not And I tend to think not. These justices understand themselves to be doing the bidding of their billionaire benefactors. I think the point is that this new crop of justices pledges fealty to a method of interpretation, both constitutional and statutory, that was designed largely precisely to achieve judicially The key policy preferences of the Republican Party, right? Very limited regulation, no affirmative action, overturning Roe, and maybe even restricting rights to access things like contraception. I mean, a combination of this sort of little economic regulation set of preferences, and also this kind of retrograde and I think traditionalist approach to individual rights and to sex and gender more broadly. So again, broadly speaking, everyone is rowing in the same direction, and that is no accident, whether or not individual decisions are being taken, sort of mindful of the specific desires of any individual or group of individuals and that I think is a really important broader point I
1: agree with Kate that the um, problem of call it court capture can be reduced to picking people who on the day that you choose them you predict are gonna rule your way that's basically how railroad barons picked railroad commissioners back in the day to make sure they got their rates set the way they wanted But there's more to it than that because there is this continuing process of refreshment and updating, whether it's through being given pep rallies at the Federalist Society annual dinner or whether it's through the appearance of flotillas of a dozen or more amici curiae who all come in and give the latest and greatest of what it is that the billionaire elite wants these judges to do. And when you look right down to it, there's Leonard Leo who ran the ads for three of the justices now and bounced Harriet Myers so he could get Alito on behalf of the billionaires. So he's got basically four of them who he can show to his billionaires as the prizes. And the group that did that, Judicial Crisis Network, is essentially indistinguishable from a point of corporate law from something else called the Judicial Education Project and something else called the Honest Elections Project which file briefs in the court as if they were independent groups. They're they're fictitious names for essentially the same organization, and they don't even bother to disclose it. So there's more to it than just back when we picked these guys, we thought they'd rule with us. It's this constant refreshment and encouragement and updating and direction that I think continues to be worrisome. And the fact that the court won't clean up who is giving the money to these front groups and let's rule 37.6 be read in this parsed little fashion is not doing the court any credit.
0: And that leads at least thematically to where I wanted to go, which is, you know, we compare this, I say, in, in almost a 100 years. So everyone's thinking of 1937 and the switch in time that saved nine. There doesn't seem to be any cavalry coming to save the day and to all accounts This group is just bolder and bolder and flexing its muscles maybe for a a generation. A a um, well-read essay by Mark Lemley in Harvard in November described the court as imperial, but as having embarked on a radical restructuring of American law across a range of fields and disciplines. Everyone's, you know, braced for June But it's a longer-range agenda here, and I wonder if there are any things that you're particularly expecting the court, or do you see them as beginning to really achieve going forward in different
3: areas? So I will say I'm paying attention to a slightly different through line in some of these merits cases than I think most of the visible attention has been paid to which is just how much damage the court's going to do to Article Three Standing Doctrine. Yeah. It's a technical point, but in the student loan cases, in the immigration enforcement priorities case, even in 303 Creative, the website design case, to reach the merits of those cases, which it seems like there are majorities of justices that want to do, the court is going to have to expand in some pretty significant ways Standing doctrine in ways that are going to open federal courts to the kinds of lawsuits and kinds of claims That It was conservatives who spent the better part of 50 60 years, you know, making sure that those doors were closed to and that's Problematic to me when you couple it Harry with the polarization of the lower federal courts Because what that means is now I mean the the mifepristone case is just sort of the most That's visible the best example, example right? Yeah where Plaintiffs who have no plausible claim to standing under long-settled precedents find the friendliest district judge they can think of, file the case in a way where they're guaranteed to draw the friendliest district judge they can think of, get what is effectively, if not formally, a nationwide injunction against a 23-year-old administrative decision, and then you have the Fifth Circuit not slapping down the district judge as in any other time in our history it would have, right? Right. That lawsuit, like that setup, is going to keep repeating itself until the Supreme Court says that's enough, until the Supreme Court says stop. And the court has multiple chances to do that this term. And if it takes none of them, then it's open season. And, you know, we're going to look back at this term as, in some respects, the tip of the iceberg compared to what could be coming down the pike
2: just to draw that out sort of one further beat, right? So what we're looking at then is for whenever we have a democratic administration, its policies are going to be subject to second guessing and undoing in the federal courts because you will always have red state attorneys general or sometimes private individuals. And if the court says as to both of these groups, eh, we're basically going to allow standing whenever we're hostile to the underlying policy being challenged, then it's basically going to be impossible for any serious kind of policymaking to emerge from a democratic administration, kind of regardless of what is happening in Congress, because a lot of this is executive branch policymaking and has not been subject to judicial second-guessing previously, in part because of, not exclusively, but in part because of these jurisdictional obstacles like standing doctrine. But we may be in a whole new world in that regard.
0: Yeah, and in another part, because of doctrines like Chevron, which stunningly to me, you know, it used to be a conservative hobby horse and now is on the chopping block. We're in a whole new episode and a whole new hour, which at least you three don't have. And I just want to reserve a few minutes to talk about what is to be done, if anything. Senator, you've been in the lead in trying to impose some controls through legislation, what do you think is most in the realm of the achievable? I mean, part of the good work you do day in, day out is just sort of your own bully pulpit, but you've got concrete proposals up out there. What are you most hopeful about?
1: In the realm of the achievable is continued good work out of the judicial conference. I think blowing up the Scalia personal invitation trick was a signal that they were ready to defend some pretty basic principles. That was a pretty easy line to defend, but still they they defended it. They've got the dark money amicus group questioned before them right now. If they provide a good, honest answer there, I think that will be extremely helpful to the court. And then I think the determination about the Harlan Crow, Clarence Thomas reporting stuff, now that Judge Wolf has reported that The last time, they asked the wrong question Hmm. and found a process that provided zero public opportunity to figure out what happened, not even to the judicial conference itself. I don't think the judicial conference is going to go back and replicate those errors. I think they're going to try to get it right this time. And if I'm right, then we'll have three pretty significant shifts driven by the judicial conference, by the peers of the justices who can convincingly tell them you are behaving out of line and we know it because we are your colleagues and your peers.
0: All right, and what about more radical possibilities, Steve or Kate? I you know, I think most people who care about the court tend to be very conservative about changing its structure, but you know, maybe desperate times call for desperate measures. Does either of you either favor the uh, reform proposals that circulate periodically about ending life tenure, or increasing the size of the court, and do you think any has a realistic chance of being enacted?
3: The latter one's easy. No. Yeah. Yeah. I have idiosyncratic objections, actually, to the former on substance, but the larger point is that even if we somehow changed the composition of the court, that would not actually solve the underlying problem, which is the court's complete lack of accountability— it might just hide the problem because maybe we'd have justices who are more willing to be self-accountable. But the actual problem that we're seeing manifest itself in so many different ways these days is a problem that's not going to be solved by changing who's on the court or for how long they're on the court. It's a problem that's going to be solved by, at least in part, not letting the court be its own police and not letting the justices keep their own counsel and you know restoring what really was for so much of our history a much more rigorous inner branch accountability system that I think had a lot to do with why the court didn't have episodes like this going back in its history. So to me, Harry, right, the conversation is actually about not just how do we sort of cut off the problematic behavior of the present, but how do we put in place structures that's actually gonna disincentivize and if not thwart problematic behavior in the future. And that goes back to sort of reforms that are about Congress's role in oversight, Congress's role in controlling the court's work and output, Congress's supervision of the court's budget. I mean, there are so many levers Congress can pull that have nothing to do with who the justices are. And getting the senator is the last member of Congress who needs to hear this, but getting the rest of his colleagues to start thinking that those are the levers to pull, I think, is a big part of the story.
2: And maybe I'll just sort of take a page from Steve, um, not from his Shadow Docket book, actually, but from a recent Times op-ed he wrote, basically just kind of reminding all of us that just because we're not necessarily going to get either a statute passed or a constitutional amendment passed and ratified does not mean it is not worth talking publicly and actively pursuing critiques of – the court and proposals around reforming or changing the court, sometimes those things yield dividends, even if the formal legal change never materializes. And we've adverted to history a few times during this conversation. There are many, many moments in history where you can sort of see this sort of hydraulic pressure brought to bear on the court and the court changing course accordingly. Now, that's not going to result in the kind of durable change that Steve was just alluding to. But in terms of what now, I think that it's easy to feel kind of defeatist about how difficult it is to pass. Some of the formal legal changes that we have been considering, but I don't think that's a reason to basically throw up your hands and say, well, the court is just out of control. We have no power, because I actually think there are all kinds of soft power that can be exercised, and those are the kinds of powers that we need to sort of focus on, at least in the short term.
1: As a supporter of some of the forward-looking reforms, I'm also very well aware that if you do a forward-looking reform, that still leaves a lot of botched precedent on the books, like Citizens United, like Shelby, like Bruin, like Dobbs, that tend to have a common thread through them all, which is false and improper fact-finding by the Supreme Court. And I think there's a doctrinal look that can be taken at those decisions because, frankly, they get to say what the law is, per Marbury v. Madison, but they don't get to say what the facts are. And they particularly don't get to say what the facts are when they haven't developed a tested record through the adversarial process, through the percolation process, so that they're dealing with real facts, not just stuff that they made up in the back room when they were writing a decision. And I think the falsehood of the transparency fact in... Citizens United, of the don't worry, racism is over fact in Shelby, and of the highly misleading, if not outright improper, factual peregrinations through history and tradition that they indulged in in Bruin and Dobbs, lend themselves to a lot of scrutiny by academia and potentially some pretty hostile review by lower courts as well, because frankly, they don't enjoy the benefit of supremacy as to facts.
0: Well, this is so not going away. It's been a really great discussion and I kind of wish we could, you know, have it every 6 months or a year cuz it does seem like the court is poised for more of the same. We are out of time for today. We just have 1 minute for our final feature of talking 5 where we take a question from a listener. Each of us has to answer in 5 words or fewer. Today it is, where will Justice Thomas and Harlan Crow spend the summer?
1: Not on a yacht. <laughs>
3: one word left over elon musk's next spaceship (laughs) there you go
2: wow tough one um and i'm gonna go with venice it's fantastico (laughs) (laughs) wow i'm
3: stuck
0: i think i'm gonna have to go other direction to irony
2: building houses
0: in
3: pinpoint georgia
0: Thank you so much. We are out of time. Steve, Kate, and Senator Whitehouse.
3: By the way, pinpoint is two words, Harry.
0: (laughs) Oh shit! Is that? Are you sure? Broke you definitely (laughs) broke your own rule. Yes. Oh wow. In that usage, yes. Let's leave. We should leave that in. Oh my. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Steve, Kate, and Senator Whitehouse. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post daily video content breaking down legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This week, we posted a conversation with Adam Winkler about the flaws in the Supreme Court's so-called history and tradition Second Amendment analysis. Talking Feds is a completely independent production with very few commercials relative to other leading law and politics podcasts. So if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system, for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers, production assistance by Rhea Cohen Gilbert, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Thanks very much to the great Bob Odenkirk for explaining how the United States incurs debt. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Doledo LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.